Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Highway One podcast. My name's Jeff, and thank you for joining me. This podcast is dedicated to all the clubs and musicians throughout Canada. We are all connected by our kinship to this great country, our love of music, and our shared musical experiences along Canada's own Trans-Canada Highway. Signed or unsigned, original or tribute act, this podcast is all about their stories. Some of the musicians you might have heard of, most you will have not. What you see on stage is often only part of the story. Their experiences are real, and when it comes to live music, anything can happen. So sit back and enjoy these tales from Canada's Highway 1. Please be advised, this episode contains profanity, expletives, and cuss words generally used by sailors on shore leave. If it ain't dangerous, it ain't rock and roll. In this edition of the podcast, episode number two, I chat with Vince Dittrich, drummer extraordinaire, artist management, and now author. I first met Vince in the summer of 91, working as a PA, aka a roadie, at Ontario Place. The best summer job I ever had. While I got to spend some of my days working at the Forum before it was turned into the amphitheater and now a beer-branded stage, the vast majority of my time was spent at the Island Showplace. This venue played host to a who's who of can-rock artists on their way up at the time. The Phantoms, the Scatolites, the Skydiggers, and the Bare Naked Ladies are a few that come to mind. But the band that has stuck with me the most is Spirit of the West. They put on a great show every night, coaxing people into the moat in front of the stage. As the story goes, and you'll hear me tell it in the podcast, their gear arrived at the venue long before the band did. I set up Vince's kit for him as I was familiar with who he was and his setup. He later thanked me, as he didn't have to do much when he arrived apart from sit down and play. We got to talking, and he asked if I was a drummer, which I said yes. He then offered to sit down in woodshed with me while he was in town. That's just another term for running down rudiments on a pad. I was too self-conscious of my playing at the time and didn't take Vince up on his offer, an opportunity I regret to this day. The band and Vince were very friendly and appreciative of the work the PA crew provided that week. It has stuck with me all these years later, and as no surprise, when I contacted Vince about doing this podcast, he was more than accommodating with his time. Without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, Vince Dittrich. How are you doing? Good, good. Very pleased to see you and re-meet you. Yes, absolutely. You look great. Oh, thanks. A little, little, uh, a little snow on the roof there. <laughs> you and me both, actually. Um, how are yeah. you doing since uh, the kidney transplant? You doing well? Uh, yeah, I'm, the kidney is is amazing. It's completely saved my life. I'm I'm great. The kidney is excellent and strong, and I you know take cage care of it i mean i'm not like not as healthy as i should be as far as exercising um and uh i'm on all the medications in the world every <laughs> medication i take so much dope you would not even believe it i've really gained a lot of weight and i'm trying desperately to shed a few pounds because you know i'm just like i'm like a couch whale <laughs> You blend in with everybody else, though, with COVID, right? Nobody's being active or fit. Well, this is kind of true, especially in our age group. You know, I'm 58 now. And belated happy birthday to you. Oh, thank you. God, you've been doing your research. (laughs) I've been trying. (laughs) 
very impressive. Most people can't even pronounce my name. <laughs> Dittrich? Oh, awesome. Did I get yes. it right? All right. You got it right first time. Not, I try. You know, after a while, you just give up. You go, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. But, you know, if unless it's McTavish or something, nobody knows how to pronounce it. <laughs> Everybody with an East Block last name just gives up and goes, yeah, I'll mispronounce it too for your courtesy. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, I want to thank you again for uh, for agreeing to do this. I, I was really looking forward to it. Um, as I had mentioned to you in my letter to you, I um, I met you, and I want to say it was around 1990 when I was working as a, a roadie uh, at um, Ontario Place. It was my summer job to pay for university, and I had seen you previously with Sue Medley. Um, and I want to say it was probably maybe the year before, but you had come through Toronto mm-hmm. and you uh, played the Diamond, which later became the Phoenix. Uh, fantastic show. Like I, I, I had such a good time. But I remember when we were loading your gear in and this flight case comes in and it says Sue Medley on it. I'm like, hey. And I popped it open and there's the, the off-green uh, recording custom kit. I knew who it was. I knew it was you. Um, and so, and you were absolutely wonderful. And the band was absolutely wonderful. Like what a, what a great time. I think you guys were there for four days and it was like, it was a lot of fun. Like just a great memory from that time. I actually do remember that show because it was, uh, what, what we used to call one bed, four sleeps, you know, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's always one nighters and we, we were there. And then if memory serves, we left Toronto, flew to London, played one show in, in, uh, Birmingham with, um, the wonder stuff opening for the wonder stuff at the Walsall football pitch flew right back the next day and then resumed in Toronto. Does that, does that, uh, does that joggle your memory at all? Wow. That is absolutely crazy. Yeah, it was. And there were a few refreshments in, uh, in Britain, as you can imagine. So we came back just thoroughly bedraggled. Well, like I said, you guys put on a great show and your tech had set the lights up so that in the backdrop, they would drop a, like a, a green or a red heart. And, and the rest of us were like, that is brilliant. That's pure genius. So we left it up the, for the oh, rest wow. of the summer. Oh, yeah, we left it up for the rest of the summer. And when the Sky Diggers came through, they joked like nightly when we would flash that on, uh, in the backdrop. They, they thought it was quite funny. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was just a great, great time. And people Gee, dancing I, I in the moat. I wonder who our lighting tech was at that time. I'm not sure. Oh, I must have been Sport. Sporty. Okay. Nickname everybody knows him as Sport. It was just great. It was pure pure lighting genius. <laughs> that sounds like him. So I wanted to ask you, because um, I know you've been playing for quite a while. And yeah, do you remember your first gig, where yes. it was, and the name of the band? Yes, it was on April 4th, 1969 my sixth birthday with my dad's <laughs> band at a wedding at the German Canadian hall in Lethbridge, Alberta. <laughs> and I made, I made $15. Wow. That's a lot of, uh, uh, uh what is it? Bazooka Joe's. <laughs> yeah. Double bubble or whatever it was. Yeah. That was, what yeah. was your, what was your first out of town show? Do you recall? 
it would have been with that same band, with my dad's band. And I would guess it would be in one of the tiny little farming communities nearby. Very you know, nice. Pick Tribute or Coaldale or, you know, one of those tiny little farming towns. Yeah. Are, you, are you self-taught as a drummer? Uh, my dad my dad was a military bandmaster and okay. a music teacher. So yeah. he taught me all the basics, but at age two, three, four, five, <laughs> you wow. know, so I was already holding down a a fairly stable groove by age six. Wow. And I could do little solos and stuff. What was your first kit? Um, it's a, a Gret Champagne Sparkle. Come on. Yeah, my fifth birthday present. Dad spent $200 on it in 1968. <laughs> That's a lot of money in 1968. Absolutely. And I subsequently gave those drums to Ellis Frank, who is Tobin Frank's son, my okay. bandmate, Tobin Frank. I give them to his, his son, who's a beautiful young musician, and I just I wanted to I wanted them to go somewhere where they'd be used because they're really gorgeous, yeah, old classic kit, and they sound phenomenal, yeah, yeah. I've used I used them on some of the symphonic stuff that we did with Spirit of the West, and it sounded really rich and warm and woody, and you know I had calfskin heads on them and stuff. Um, well, you've played with a long list of Canadian artists, such as Long John Baldry, Paul Hyde, Sue Medley, which you have one gold record with, uh, May Moore, Doug and the Slugs, Great Big Sea, and of course, most notably, Spirit of the West were three gold and two platinum records. Not bad for a, a, a day's outing. So I think it's I think it's more than that with Spirit. Nice. I'm, I'm looking up at the wall, and there's we've got uh, several more platinums and and at least one more gold out of that. So. That is quite nice. That's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, and you know, as a result of that, I made almost $60. <laughs> but this is Canada after all, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it sure is. And boy, do you know it after a while. <laughs> do you remember your first cross-Canada tour? Uh, who was it with? And are there any moments that stand out from that tour? Uh, my first truly coast-to-coast -to -coast tour all in one go was with Long John Baldry in 87. How old were you? And I was uh, 23. <laughs> and so there are guys in the band that are, you know, 50-ish, 45 to 50, and hard-rocking 1960s pop stars, you know. Like, these people knew how to rock hard, play hard, Veterans of the hard, word. drink hard, all that stuff. And I was just this lily-white kid. And, oh, my God, the things that I learned. I mean... It was, you know, Kathy McDonald kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. You remember Kathy McDonald? Yes, singer? I do. And, uh, and John Baldry and, like, the bass player was George Ford, who was Alan Parsons' bass player. Right. You know, and he played, like, the song Year of the Cat. Yeah. It's him playing on Year of the Cat. And, you know, he's my bass player. And he's, you know, he's played on every big record in the 70s coming out of Britain, and I'm his drummer. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> Jimmy Horowitz played keyboards. It was it was a really incredible group of people who just drank way too much. <laughs> and I was an idealist. I just gave up, no, I'm gonna to be totally disciplined and I'm gonna I'm gonna be the best I can be and I'm gonna come back from this tour twice as good as I started it, you know. And, and then, you know, it's like, oh I gotta go and help Butch find his shoes and oh god, he's <laughs> falling off the stage and it just it was madness, just madness, and I got so vibed out. Baldry would say, oh, Vince, if, 
This madness is your biggest trouble. You have no troubles at all. He just loved it. He loved it. The more madness that there was, the happier he was. He no loved kidding. the chaos. Yeah, he loved it. And I think it took the focus away from excellence, which he enjoyed. He didn't want anybody looking at him and saying, geez, you kind of sang that badly or, ooh, you're out of time. Yeah, he just wanted it to be a big party. <laughs> How long were you with him for? I actually played on and off with John for at least a couple of years. I was uh, I was playing with Sue Medley, with Baldry, right. with Doug and the Slugs, wow. all at the same time, and wow. swapping out. And then Pat Stewart uh, and I shared many of the same gigs. And there was a guy who's a Torontonian now, but he was in Vancouver right then, uh, Al Webster. The three of us really kind of had all the same gigs, and we swapped around. Very cool. And uh, yeah, and it came from nothing. One day I was, you know, unemployed and thinking I'm never going to get a gig. To well, a year later, I had all the gigs it just it was such a rich fertile time right know? well and we had built a scene for ourselves all of us together yeah. and we took care of each other and it was yeah. it was magical i don't know if that still happens i hope it does like you know i don't have any money come to my house for dinner you know that's amazing fantastic 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 that's part of the renaissance of uh, canadian of can rock right and for you sure. guys were were thick in that, uh, which is part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast, because I read that book, and you know, uh, Dave Bedini's on a cold road. And then of course, my own experience has just entirely influenced that. And then of course, here we are in a pandemic. And it's pretty much the day live music died, like literally overnight. And I think there's yeah. something like some 85 clubs across this country have closed uh, permanently. Um, yeah. so it'll be interesting to see where we are when live music actually comes back around. And I think it'll take time, but I could be wrong. Um, it might be rather quick, but, uh, hopefully that, that sort of vibe comes back in the, with the next generation of Canadian musicians. I'm hoping anyway. It's, it's hard, hard to say, but my spidey sense tells me it will come back. And as you say, it will be slow ish. And the main chunk the main demographic of the people who used to go out are now aging. Yeah. They're aging out. They want stuff on their computer or on their television. They just don't want, they don't want to fight with the parking deer. You know? <laughs> and the young people have experienced music in a vastly different way. Yes. Than, than we had in the old days before, before there was any option to stream anything or, right. or total video coverage of your favorite young bands. Right. Because you know, what is it for young bands now to make a video? It's nothing. They do it on a regular basis. Right. And their their visuals are so strong that the music has changed as a result. It's very rare that you have a really video-heavy band that also is music-heavy. Very mm -hmm. rare because vision trumps right. the sound. Unfortunately, in most humans' experiences, um, you know, when when I was young, I would I would listen with my ears but kids now, they, 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 sorry, I, I would, I would see with my ears, right. I would see with my ears. I didn't need a music video and kids listen with their eyes. Right. Yeah. The social media, right. It's, and this is what I kind of fear. Social media is so popular and it's so easy for a lot of these younger musicians to produce two minute video, a one minute video, a 30 second video and get likes and paid for 
on YouTube. I'm not sure that there, whether the incentive is to join a band and go out and have fun and, of course, hop in a van and tour Canada. And, there is none. Yeah. It, there, it, there's none. And I don't know if that is necessarily a bad thing because interesting. we beat our we beat our pans up. We got really, really good at music. I got to play music seven nights a week for years and years, decades. Yeah. But, and it made me an exceptionally quick study. And I learned a lot about, you know, mystery situations. So you can fumble your way through to make it sound great, even though you don't even know the people on stage because you got called in because their drummer got sick, you know, and it's like, get down here. And you show up at 10 o'clock and you're, what's your name? Uh, I forget. <laughs> One, two, three, playing. let's go. <laughs> it's absolutely shuffle in G, two, three, <laughs> and you're kind of learning about the people who, oh, there's a, there's a piano player over there behind the post. I didn't even see him, <laughs> you know? And it's like, that kind of heads up hockey is, it's getting lost. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. Um, but I mean, you're hitting on like an incredible time in in Canadian music, and Absolutely. and even session musicians, right? Like, there you look at the list of albums of which of which I was one. I wanted to do that above all else. I could have lived in a studio through my twenties and thirties, yeah, and I almost did. And now you cost too much money when you can just get a drum machine to do it. Oh. I've had people actually tell me that they used the group. They, they hire me for an album. And five years later, I say, oh, I hear you're doing a new album. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're almost done. Oh, who do you use for drums? Oh, we used you from the last album. And I go, oh, shit. <laughs> really? I'm, I can't wait to see my credit. <laughs> yeah, just and I, I realized and I had predicted this, too. And I. I, I realized there was one night I had this epiphany standing on the stage after a set. I got up and I went, you know what? Drums are going to become a classical instrument. Uh. And I knew it was true. And it happened within 10 years. Drums just became, you know, all it is is, is now it's basic timekeeping for the rhythmically incapable, you know, port and starboard, port, starboard, port, right. starboard. Which is it's a just, shame. Yeah, because it's such, in the hands of a master, yeah. a drum kit is the most expressive and the most difficult instrument to master. You can make the rest of the band do things they didn't even know they wanted to do, just with dynamic control Yeah, and setups and, and your feel. steering and phrasing. and Yeah, and that's before the basic feel. Yeah. You've got you one know, of the best drum feels. Uh, you're truly a drummer's drummer. Like, for example, uh, Sue Medley, Dangerous Time. You that groove that pocket is so happy, you know. It, it it just it makes you move. It's it's and that's the best way I can describe that pocket. It's so so happy. But you you have that within most of your playing, right? And, and it's so rare. You can't. I I would say that you can't program that. No 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 no. You have to understand some some more sophisticated. Uh, philosophical issues and some you have to be playing with both parts of your brain you know it can't right. be math rock no it has to it has to you have to have some metaphors that you're chasing as you're playing uh you know the, my buddy had an old farming friend who who said it's got to be in the head before it can come out the flute <laughs> and and you know like i just laughed and i went how incredibly true you have to know what you want to achieve and it's a very spiritual thing. It's like a dance. 
It's kind of like a dance when you can really get the room moving with your body. Right. You're just doing that with those instruments there. And so many more layers of texture and technique and depth and spirituality. And it's a tremendously, you couldn't teach a classical player how to play that way. They just right. have to understand what drums are meant to do. And you do it so well. Well, I thank you very much. But I wanted to talk about that Sue Midley stuff. I mean, anything to do with Sue Medley at the time would have had, because it was countryfied, yep. very country-leaning, yep. you're on horseback. It right. is a, it is everything everything in country music, in good country music, should relate to riding a horse. <laughs> doom, chucka, doom, chucka, doom, chucka, doom, chucka. Everything. Amazing. There are canters and gallops and everything's about the horse. If you know that, then you can go there. I was a big fan of her because that was... That was kind of popular at the time. I shouldn't say popular, but it was that kind of alt roots rock. Um, my my friend and manager at the record store played in a band called the Saddle Tramps, and oh, I remember them. Yep. So he was the one who turned me on to Sue Medley, and and then of course uh, driving and crying, and and the things that were being produced by uh, Anton Fig, or uh, sorry, Anton Fear. Um, so like Anton, going Anton in that, Fig. There's another. Yeah. Now that's a hell of a drummer. I mean, again, talking about pocket, right? But uh, I'm glad that you brought up uh, Sue because I wanted to ask you this one. I also heard or read that when you did that um, self-titled album tour, you guys got to open for Mr. Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah, we did. Any good stories about Mr. Bob Dylan? Oh, you've done your research, haven't you? <laughs> well, I tried. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know where you found this one, but uh, uh, there was there was a thing with with – Bob Dylan that uh, when he was the band would start vamping his band on stage and everybody else was supposed to go into their dressing rooms or into the into the dining room or wherever and just leave a a clear path for him to stumble to the stage because he was a bit stumbly and uh, so we were in uh, Iowa somewhere in middle America and uh, I hear the band groove, and we'd done the show countless times, and I knew exactly where Bob's supposed to launch in. I mean, yeah. we'd done it so many times. And uh, so I'm listening. I'm going, oh, I think it's safe to go out now. I'm going to go down and go side stage and talk to the monitor guy. They had a monitor guy named Rocky, who was hilarious, very funny guy. <clears throat> and we'd always go and hang out with Rocky and bring him uh, vodka and, and uh, orange juice, you know. He loved that because I don't think they had any on their rider in Reno shock a block with it and uh so i go out there and it was on the second floor our dressing room was on the second floor in a hallway and there was a big fire door that uh would open to the the, to the stairwell and uh, there was a landing right there you open into a landing and (laughs) uh, i just carelessly just push this big heavy metal fire door open. <laughs> and Bob Dylan is standing there and it brushed his back and he sort of wobbled back and forth right on the precipice of the landing. Oh, and no. his handler is at the bottom of the stairs and she sees this and her eyes get as big as saucers because she thinks he's going to tumble headlong down the cement <laughs> and metal stairs. And I'm standing there going, <laughs> and we both look at each other and this moment just sort of passes and he goes stumbling down the stairs <laughs> to the stage and I just thought 
oh my god, I didn't want my claim to fame to be that I accidentally killed Bob Dylan. That was just a terrifying moment. The most hated man in music. Oh, no, no, possibly the most celebrated, really. That is a fantastic story. Thank you so oh. much. I want to get on to Spirit of the West because you guys were pioneers of the folk rock, Celtic rock, kind of genre here in Canada. And you guys did it from the West Coast, which is typically the distinction of East Coast artists. Um, so I know that you joined Spirit of the West around 1991. Uh, and that was for the recording of the Go Figure record, right? I also read that it was extensive touring of that record that helped produce material uh, for the follow-up for Faithlift, uh, which has got uh, Sadness Grows and uh, Venice is Sinking on it. Uh, my question to you, was there anything from that tour that stands out as a aha moment that helped to bring you guys together as a band? Not one, uh, but there were... <sighs> First of all, I joined earlier than that, and they went to Britain to support um, uh, Save This House without me. Okay. They went just as a quartet. And uh, and then, but we had been rehearsing and practicing and building songs for Go Figure at that time. And then they went away and they did their brief British thing, which, I don't know, a couple, three weeks. And uh, then we got to work on, on Go Figure. And we, there was a lot, I think they were, really surprised by what I was bringing to the band outside of the drumming mm -hmm. because I was so highly, highly experienced at putting on proper shows for a proper audience okay. in a more formalized situation. Uh, like we need lighting. We need a guitar tuner. If you can't tune your own guitar, we need a set list that we follow. We need to not have long breaks between songs where there's dead silence. We need to have the set list built in such a way that it ramps up to a climax so that we can get an encore, maybe. We need to have crew to help us at the end of the night move our equipment so we can go out and sign autographs and sell CDs. We need, we need, we need, we need right. all these things. These things that were just basic to me were completely new to this folky ensemble who, did, you know, it's like cases left on the stage. Like, literally, I go, really? We you're just going to leave your case there? Take it off the stage. And they go, oh, okay. Does it matter? <laughs> yeah, it matters. And it, it, and I'm not I'm not saying anything against them. No, just, no. It's a different world completely, right. you know? Yep. You know, it's like, oh, well, we have to find a vegetarian restaurant with a certain kind of special lattes, you know? I'm going, what? McDonald's, <laughs> let's go. Times are wasting. You know, it was just two worlds colliding. It was hilarious. <laughs> it's funny now. At the time, it was agony. But you brought that but, professionalism to them. Boy, did I ever. And it was very difficult because they wanted, they, they, they had things going a certain way. Right. And they wanted them to just continue that way. And I just, I would have none of it. Interesting. I, have, I would have none of it. I would go, no, we have to be slicker. We have to be tighter. We have to be more of a force, a unified force on and off stage. Right. And eventually they saw the wisdom because we I forced a few things and they worked well. And they went, right. oh, okay, fair enough then. The Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver. And so of the people that I've spoken to so far, that name keeps, keeps coming up. That venue keeps coming up. And it's one of the more popular venues here in Canada. And you guys had the distinction of playing there multiple times, multiple nights in a row, 
and sold out. So I'm wondering if you have any uh, specific memories uh, of that venue and the things that you liked about that venue or don't like about that venue. I think it's, um, I think we played there over 50 times and they actually have, they have a tribute to us there now, a whole wall, the spirit of the West wall. I think we're second most appearances there. And I think 5440 are a couple more than us. Wow. But you know, hometowners, right? right? It was home ice for us. We felt very strongly. It was home ice. And, uh, we, uh, we always liked it, especially the new, I mean, the old one was charming, but it was pretty ramshackle, especially backstage. <clears throat> but the new one was totally world-class. Everything was clean. There were showers, locking dressing rooms, furniture that hadn't been eaten by rats, <laughs> fridges, you know, it was all very, very, uh, very legit. And yeah. They put a lot of thought and money into it. The PA was great. The, the front of house console was great. The yeah. house crew yeah, untouchably good and good friends of ours, you know. So it's just the sight lines are perfect. Everybody can see everything. Uh, the floor still bounces for the bouncy, bouncy right. people. Um, I just found it to be generally the best overall place because people could get as as refreshed as they wanted to sure, be. Sure. And uh, there's nothing formal about it. Um, it had such a tradition. Like you knew you were in a place where great things had happened. History. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm playing drums on the same same stage where I don't know, Benny Goodman played and Lena Horne sang and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that, that kind of history, it feels good to you. It kind of seeps into you. You feel it in the room. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. There's a resonance there. We were totally comfortable. We knew where we were on the stage. There was no stumbling around going, I hope I'm not going to trip on such and such and make an <laughs> ass of myself. No, we knew the the blocking perfectly. Yeah. I have many good memories. People coming to see us from side, side stage and you look over and you see somebody that you didn't expect to see. Right. I, I do. I have one stupid memory of having early in the days when I would come out and sing a, sing a solo. Yeah. Uh, it was, that's Amore It was one of the principal songs right. I do. And uh, on this particular night, I had somebody go next door and get one of those great big pizzas, you know, like a, a <laughs> 18 inch pizza and I brought it out when the moon hits your eye and I'm trying to give out pizza to people in the front row and they grabbed this box and they started it was the most disgusting thing to see people grabbing pizza from me on stage it was on the floor and they pick it up off the floor and jam it in their mouths and ah. it was just pizza Students. I just went, oh my god what have I rocked here amazing absolutely it was like starving dogs <laughs> what are uh, some of your favorite places to play in the country uh hmm, let me really think about that there are a few great ones um i always really liked the uh, um they used to call it the walker theater in winnipeg okay now it's the burton Ooh. the burton cummings okay uh, lovingly known by <laughs> Winnipeg musicians as the Come. Naturally. I always love that place because now there you're playing on the same stage where Winston Churchill spoke and wow. Charlie Chaplin did his his vaudeville act. Wow. And that is a historical place. And I uh, absolutely love the vibe there. Uh, that comes to mind first. There are other nice places. I like playing both of the uh, Jubilee aud auditoriums in Alberta, Calgary, and Edmonton. Okay. They're very nice theaters. 
Um, the NAC in Ottawa is very nice and historical, but it's very, it's kept up very, very well and beautiful. Um, uh, the, the key to Bala in Bala, yes. Ontario, yeah. a, lot, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, hotter than the hubs of hell. <laughs> but I've been there uh, many it times. It always bothered me how high the stage was. The stage was, I don't know, eight feet high, 10 yeah. feet high. Yeah. Super high. So that it made you feel quite distanced from the audience. So that wasn't, that wasn't the best, but the room was, you know, just aching with character. Yeah. And, and, you know, on a July night. Yeah, you can't beat it, right? Well, or you couldn't heat, back then. Yeah, you'd easily go up to forty-five degrees in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just come off stage and you'd literally just plunge into the lake. The walls were sweating. Everything. <laughs> yeah, like, I remember Doug Bennett from Doug and the Slugs having to at the end of the night he had to just run into the bathroom and lose control for a couple of minutes. Then he came back on stage and did the encore. Awesome. And I remember John. It was so sweaty in that room that John actually slipped on the stage and ratched his ankle. The whole place was sweating. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. And I do recall actually having come off stage one particularly hot night and just going right into the lake, clothes and all. I just <laughs> took my headset mic off and, <laughs> and it, was, it was awesome. sort of undressed in the water, you know, I threw my sodden clothes onto the, onto the, uh, the pier. Well, uh, I, I couldn't get away with uh, without asking a question about the late Mr. Mann. Um, he and Mr. Kelly founded uh, Spirit of the West way back in the 80s. And he was such a high-energy, charismatic front man. I was going through your material uh, in prep of this podcast and going through the records. And I hadn't listened to Acoustic Kitty till this week, his solo record. And it's, it's a beautiful record. I, I know you, you don't yeah. play drums on it, but it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful record. So anybody who's actually witnessed a Spirit of the West show know that he has the ability to bring the audience uh, into a frenzy and, and lead them like the Pied Piper, whether you're storming Parliament or hopping the fence at Ontario Place to wade into the moat uh, in front of the stage at the Island Show Place. So I'm wondering, and I'm sure you have millions upon millions of, of fantastic stories about Mr. Mann. I'm wondering if you can share any, uh, a specific memory of him whipping the audience into a frenzy. The frenzy was kind of the goal. You know, <laughs> after we discovered that frenzy was possible, after I came in and yeah. we realized that a sustained assault for the back half of the set yeah. could induce a true frenzy, that became the goal. It was like, let's get them dancing so hard that they, they just can't, they can't let us go. We're going right. to get like three encores, four encores, whatever it's going to take. And, and we really started to set our, our, uh, sites for that and john was of course the tip of the spear and he would do all sorts of things big rooms little rooms he he just had those electric eyes you know and he could he could manipulate an audience pretty well but i, I remember you know some of the really big shows we did with the tragically hip Ooh. um i think the biggest one was it was in excess of fifty thousand people wow at uh molson park in barry right um, I remember John running around and doing some of that kind of this side, this side, the ends in the air, you know, and it, it, it was really quite, it was impressive and it was fun and, and sometimes mischievous. Yeah. I definitely, 
he he hated that we are the world, we are the people stuff, and I would do that behind his back sometimes, you know, <laughs> and get everybody in the audience doing that, and he he get that look on his face, whip around and look at me like, who the hell's doing that? <laughs> it was me. We are the world, Johnny. <laughs> Damn you! I did that one time at the Calgary Folk Fest, standing right behind him, and I started doing that, and everybody everybody started doing <laughs> he knew it was me he flipped around I mean, it's just like god damn it Vince. <laughs> off with the cornball awesome <laughs> but but he would do that kind of stuff all the time thank you i'm going to oh, ask you funny. about uh your book is it still coming out this summer the liquor vicar yes the liquor vicar is due out in canada on august 21st i think Yes, August 21st of this year, and it's coming out uh, shortly afterwards in the USA and the UK. Amazing. Uh, sept- September in the UK, later in August in the USA, I think. Uh, it's uh, it's a novel. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's about a failed musician that uh, that still lives the dream. He's, you know, probably into his late 30s, early 40s, and he just refuses to give up the dream, and I've known a million of them, right. you know. I think we all do. Music is a music is as much a, a sickness as it is a pursuit, because once it gets into your under your skin, you, you can't let it go. It's really hard, yeah. especially for these dreamer types. You know, guitars and dreams, and uh, and he he's curmudgeonly, he's unhappy, he's failed in following his dream, and he's completely oblivious to the fact that he has skills unrelated to being a rock star that are unbelievably powerful and and uh, life-changing and he basically begrudgingly discovers his own powers through an adventure on a fictional town on vancouver island amazing i'm looking forward to reading reading this i was reading the synopsis well, it's, i'm excited it's pretty edgy it's pretty edgy because you know dark comedy failed musicians dark yeah it's good <laughs> i i would say um if you considered it more a British in tone, in the tone of writing, right. you might be less shocked. But if you okay. think it's some some uh, friendly little Canadian thing about everything is uh, gentle and beautiful, it, it's it not is bad. not that. Good. <laughs> no, it's 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 got a really cynical edge, like failed musicians have. Perfect. I'm excited, <laughs> Vince. I really I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And uh, and for any young people watching or listening, are we are we being video here or is it just audio? Uh, it's just audio. You got to ask people to mentor you, and you have when they say yes, you have to follow it up. Because people like me, we we sit out there and we go, "There's got to be more good I can do in the world." Because right. we know how lucky we are, and if if we don't know how lucky we are, then we don't deserve to be doing it. But almost everybody who can do something like write books or play at big concerts and do records and all those all those dream jobs. We know how lucky we are, right? And we want to share it and pass along because, you know, so much of it is natural talent, but a lot of it is work and effort and practice and shortcuts. If you can be taught shortcuts and leap two years in a single lesson, we're all happy to be asked. Perfect. Uh, I wish you the best of health and all the success with your book. I'm looking forward to reading it, sir. Thank you very much for your kind questions. This is fun. <laughs> fun. Let's do it again. Perfect. Thank you again. Okay. Bye thanks. now. Bye-bye. This concludes episode two of the Highway One podcast. Theme music provided by Dave Viva 
of Locomotion Music, hosting and everything else provided by me, Jeff Elliott. Thanks for listening. <laughs>